0: So this afternoon, I would like to explore with you um, uh, equanimity and this, the importance that it has in the place of our practice because it is both the path that we follow and it's also the goal. If there is to be a goal in this practice, it's equanimity. So it's a very important factor of mind and heart to understand. And I think that um, after a couple of days of sitting and walking and looking at our own heart and mind, we might be ready to receive the teachings around equanimity. So equanimity is really this, it's such a beautiful quality that all of us know in some way. And equanimity isn't a place that we arrive at. It's not like a, you know, it's not like here we are and we're always in this place of equanimity. But it's really to understand a little bit more deeply what it actually is so that we don't uh, create some kind of ideal, an idea about it and then think we're not there. And that's the danger, that's the trap. Somehow, oh, it seems so far away, you know, it's like the goal of the teachings, you know. It's like it's unreachable. So we really want to make the, um, the knowing of equanimity attainable and recognizable for us. So that when we uh, sense into this, when we touch into the equanimity, we can say, ah, this is equanimity. But it's, un- it's important to understand it has both the path and the goal. It's the path, so that means that we are practicing equi- equanimity all the time. It's, it's the way that our, that our uh, practice unfolds because it has to do with the radical acceptance of the way things are. So every time I let go of my expectation, every time I let go of my preferences and my desires and my hopes and my my fears, each time I let go, I land in a quality of equanimity. Because in, it, it's almost, we might also look, almost look at it like a verb rather than a noun. No, because it, it in itself, it is the action of letting go. The action of letting go when we let go there, there is the equanimity, right? It, because we are already in a quality of acceptance. We're already in a quality of allowing. But it's very dynamic, it's very alive. It's... Because um, we, we have to be careful not to imagine a state of mind that we arrive in and then that's where we are. <laughs> and I do think that's one of the traps in the practice is that it sets up, there can be a potential to set up a kind of destination. And all all the different Buddhist traditions are guilty of this in some way, particularly when we use words like nibbana and enlightenment, you know, which definitely set up some kind of a, you know, some place that we attain rather than really having an experience that is more dynamic and alive, and changing, and shifting, and where we're discovering new things all the time. But So it's a quality. We wanna, I'm hoping that as I talk this, eve, this afternoon that you'll have a sense of the quality of equanimity that I think we all know in some way. The word in Sanskrit is upekha we have a dormitory right or oh, dormitory upeka and it means to, to look over kind of to over overlook where we don't get caught right we um, we are able to see what's happening without getting stuck or caught in it you know sometimes the, they use the image of a, a flypaper you know where, where where the mind is like that you know has stickiness and we get stuck in it <laughs> But that's the, that's the opposite of equanimity, right? Equanimity is, uh, upeka is to stand in the middle of what's happening, to stand in the, in the middle of conditions without being thrown off balance, without, without being thrown off. And that balance comes from an inner strength, and, uh, an inner stability. But that stability comes from uh, uh, wisdom and insight, that's what gives the equanimity power. It's not just, uh, you'll have to, if you could please, Ellen, just, I'm, it's a little disturbing for me, thank you. Um, it, it, there it is, right? You know? <laughs> just needing needing a little bit more stillness in, in terms of sensing into what I'm wanting to, wanting to uh, express to you. So so the so equanimity comes from this uh, understanding of the way things are it's not just something that we can know or find within ourselves if if we don't really understand how it arises so it arises from insight it arises from clear seeing into the nature of things into the way things are and what that insight is is that we know directly, with clear seeing, that experience changes, that it's fleeting, that it's insubstantial, that there isn't anything that lasts. So there's no thing, there's nothing that can give us any kind of lasting gratification because everything is transitory, everything is fleeting, everything is shifting, everything is changing. And without that wisdom, without that understanding, then we wanna hold on to things and have them either be permanent or have them be the way we want them to be, match our expectations, match our desires, and then we get involved in what's called the grasping or the holding on, trying to get things in order to uh, match our liking. And if we could really start to see deeply how this manifests right in our meditation experiences, because we can see how we can start to set up good meditation experiences and not good uh, meditation experiences. Like, I like this one, and this is what I'm supposed to have, not this meditation experience, you know? I'm not supposed to be restless and tired and you know, caught up in my hindrances and my desires. That's not it. You know, it's supposed to look like this. And right there, we're caught in not seeing that this will change. <laughs> Yes, it might be restless and, you know, then going back and forth from restlessness to tiredness, but that's going to change. So as I know know that and sense into that, there is more possibility that I'll let go of my desire, of my expectations, of my preferences, that then I overlay and put on top of the experience that's happening. I just allow things to be as they are. This is the equanimity, the equanimity that knows that things are the way they are and things will change. Give it space, give everything, give, give people space, give myself some space, give the situation space. And then things start to shift, they start to change. one of the ideals or the hopes that we have is somehow life won't be messy, right? I mean, I I lived in this delusion for so long, I'm actually surprised how long I lived in this delusion, that somehow it was my fault that my life was messy and that I was messy. You know, there's something wrong with me. Rather than... Hmm, maybe this has something to do with being in a human mind and a human body, (laughs) right? I mean, it's like it's one of the things we start to recognize that life is messy. The Buddha, of course, put it like this. He said, there is suffering in this life. There is suffering in this life. This first truth, the first noble truth of the Buddha And somehow we think this mind, this ego mind, or or if we take ourselves to be this ego mind, we think it should be different. That somehow this life wouldn't be messy. The Buddha makes this so clear. This is one of the foundational teachings of the Buddha to come into this understanding, which is called understanding dukkha. You know, this wonderful word, Sanskrit word, dukkha. You know, and, and once you get a taste of it and a feel for it, it's just, it's, you just, it's nice to say. Because it's just, it's just the truth. Things are dukkha. It means suffering or, or unsatisfactory. You know, I just can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> you know? It's dukkha. It can, because the conditions, these conditions are not meeting my expectations. In fact, we can, it, in the teachings, the it, dukkha has been broken down into eight types of dukkha or eight types of suffering, you know. So generally it's in a category of three, but in those categories they can be broken down even more so the first category is called dukkha dukkha, <laughs> not just dukkha, <laughs> but dukkha dukkha. You can see how you know we 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 can get into this. Um, <laughs> it's essentially the dukkha that arises from having a mind and a body. Right. The the painful experiences that happen from having a mind and a body. So birth, that's where it all starts, folks. <laughs> it all beca- begins because we were born. Birth is dukkha, right? Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Death is dukkha, right? The four kinds of dukkha-dukkha, right? And, and that there is no way out of that is we're not going to overcome that one, (laughs) right? We are, because we were born, we are going to get older and we are going to get sick and we are going to die. That means if we don't die right when we're born or, you know, we don't die somewhere, you know, early in our youth, everybody's still here, you know, we're aging and we're getting sick and we're going to die. You know, so, so it's just, it's just, Taking that in, it's a it's a reflection, a deep reflection, in the teaching. So otherwise, we get so attached and so identified with our body, and so identified with our mind. This is who I am, and I don't want anything to happen. We get fearful, we get uh, we get uh, uh, attached, but we deeply reflect on the truth of this, and it's dukkha. It's painful. It's not that it's not going to be painful. So, so, so we get real. It's like we get real with the teaching. This is just the first four kinds of dukkha, right? In the first category, dukkha, dukkha. The second category is called vipari viparinama dukkha. And it, it really is a dukkha that has to do with the fact that things change, this changing nature. And because we do hold on The first kind of dukkha in this category is that we encounter what is unpleasant in this changing condition, right? That's what we're looking at this morning, how things change and they change to unpleasant. They're gonna be somewhere along that continuum of pleasant to unpleasant and somewhere in between. That's the nature of this life, the nature of the conditions in this life. So we will encounter What is unpleasant? There's no way around that. The next one is the separation from what is pleasant. It's dukkha, it's painful. It's painful to be separated from what is pleasant, from what we love, from what we feel close to. It's very painful to be separated. But this happens because things change. People die, people get sick and they die. You know things we lose things, we can't keep the things that we love. And we have a wonderful example of what's going on right now with two thousand structures have been burned. Two thousand structures have been burned. Hmm. Dukkha, it's painful. It's not that it should not be painful. And this is something that I... And it took me a long time to understand because somehow I thought that if my practice was really strong, if I really understood, that I wouldn't feel the pain. But that's not what it is. It means that I'm in a balanced and steady place in myself in relationship to the conditions that are arising and passing. It doesn't mean that that the impact or the, the resonance in my heart and in my being isn't painful, unpleasant. It's natural. It's a natural part of being human. Having a human mind, a human body, a human heart is that we're impacted by these things. The, the next one is not getting what you want. It's painful. You know, we want what we want. <laughs> And the more privileged we are, you know, the more spoiled we are, the more we are used to getting what we want, and then we don't get what we want, it's more suffering. The more attachment, the more expectation, it's painful. So those are the first seven kinds of dukkha. And the last one is called sankhara dukkha, and it's basically general misery. (laughs) This so it paints a pretty picture, doesn't it? <laughs> this is our human condition. You know, and we're and there's general misery because of because all things are conditioned, meaning everything is dependent on everything else, and so everything's changing and shifting all the time as it comes into manifestation and disappears, birth and death, birth and death every moment. Every moment something comes into form and then disappears. And that's, that, that's, that creates misery. <laughs> it's just, it's like we don't know where to go for our satisfaction, for our happiness. Every time we reach out, it disappears. It's like sand going through our fingers. We can't have what we want. All forms of life are changing, impermanent, and without any core or substance. There's no core anywhere, even though there is the appearance of that, like this table or this picture. And we all know, because of science, that you put any of this under a microscope, and what do you get? You get a lot of atoms and things bouncing around, and what you see is that this, which appears hard, is about 95% space, 95% empty, with a bunch of atoms knocking around, All right? So, so, science is even showing us how we, you know, the truth of things, but yet the Perception, our perception is so conditioned that we take things f- to, to be as they appear rather than looking a little bit more deeply. But we don't have to have a magnetic tele- t- a microscope to look at our own experience. We have awareness and we can look at our own bodies and our own minds and we can see this directly. That, where is that lunch that you had, this one, that wonderful lunch you had this afternoon? You know, where is that, that tiredness that you had earlier today? You know, where is the, the teaching that we had this morning? I mean, you know, you know, you could say anything. These all feel a little bit simple. Oh, it's just, it's just, where is it? Nothing has any core, nothing has any substance. So this is what needs to be understood. This is the insight that is so uh, uh, important in our practice to see the way things really are. Otherwise, we are going to continually get buffered by these winds of change. You know, it's just winds of change. Right. It's called the worldly winds. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha says that the worldly winds are the winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, success and failure, pleasure and pain, right? Just the winds that blow. And we look at our own experience and we can just see that's what's happening all the time. You know, we are praised and then we're blamed. We gain something and we lose something. We feel we've made a success and then there's a failure. Right? Or something's pleasurable, then it becomes painful. Like the winds of change. And unless we have something that anchors us, some kind of steadying force within our own experience we are going to be buffered we're going to be blown around so the meditation this meditation uh uh, experience practice gives us a kind of um ballast kind of a ballast in our being in our experience so when the winds come we might blow but you know we come back to center It's like those rubber dolls with the sand in the bottom, you know, and you can knock them over, but they come right back up because there's a ballast, you know, there's something anchoring them in place. And so our meditation starts to give us that kind of feeling. I mean, yeah, sure, we're gonna be blown around because maybe we're not fully, uh, we haven't recognized fully our Buddha nature yet, you know, but we have the ballast. We can start to feel like, oh yeah, I have some firm ground, firm ground of equanimity here, where I come back, this returning, returning back I right, to some place within ourself that feels strong, that feels steady, that feels resilient. In the face of things, the face of life, came across this um, kind of funny story. It says there was a well-known scholar who practiced Buddhism and befriended a Chan master. Thinking that he had made great stride in his cultivation, he wrote a poem and asked his attendant to deliver it to the master who lived across the river the master opened the letter and read the short poem out loud. And the poem went like this. Unmoved by the eight worldly winds, serenely I sit on the purplish gold terrace. A smile broke on the lips of the master. Picking up an inkbrush, he scribbled the word fart across the letter and asked that it be delivered back to the scholar. When the scholar saw this, he was upset and went across the river right away to reprimand the master for being rude. And the master laughed as he said, You said you are no longer moved by the eight worldly winds, and yet with just one fart, you ran across the river like a rat. (laughs) You ran across the river like a rat. Right, the true test of a Zen master. <laughs> Let's see if he's really uh, unmoved by the eight worldly winds, right? <laughs> so, this is what we, how we are tested. This is what we're, what we're looking at. How much are we thrown off by the worldly winds? Because when we really start to sense in and to know this firm ground, of equanimity that is based in insight and understanding, in a way we can begin to put down the fight. We put down the struggle with reality. It's like otherwise we're in an argument, we're arguing with reality. Now, you shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be like this. Why are things happening the way they're happening? And we're in a struggle, we're in this fight with reality. It's me against the way things are, which is what I call the egocentric position, right? That's the ego, that I, me, am gonna make a difference in the way reality is expressing itself in some way. There's so many factors involved in the way things are. I am one tiny little puny condition (laughs) in the great scheme of things. And yet the I, the me, this ego self makes I'm so important. Almost this god-like figure that can rule the world and make changes and manipulate and fix things and solve things. I mean, it's very interesting when we start to really get a feel for the position that we take when we are not seeing things so clearly. Hmm. But the equanimity can see things. The wisdom, the wisdom, the the still the stillness of the unmoving mind, the awareness itself, that can see clearly because it is still, because there's a there's an aspect of the mind that is not in reaction to what's happening. We call it the unmoving mind, the stillness of the unmoving mind this objective clear witnessing of the changing conditions it's not like the conditions stop changing <laughs> consciousness is in relationship to life there's not a consciousness that exists that doesn't is 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 separated from this worldly experience if we are in a mind and a body we are in the world. We have eyes and ears and nose and mouth and skin and we, we have emotions and mental uh, activity and consciousness is in relationship to that. It's not like it stops. Mm? Sure, there may be some meditative experiences in deep concentration where we can actually know and recognize the stillness, the mirror like stillness, the immaculate, brilliant, radiant stillness of the mind. And we can recognize that. It's possible to see that. It's possible to know that. And it changes. It changes like all things change any conditioned form arises and passes away. Everything arises and passes away and consciousness or awareness knows that, recognizes that. Sights, sounds, tastes, smells, touch, feels, emotions, mental states, minds, thought, images, thoughts, coming and going, coming and going. And when we start to sit more in the firm ground of equanimity, this is what gives us a whole new way of being in relationship with our experience, with ourselves, with our mind, with our body, with other people's minds, other people's bodies, with the situation that we find ourselves in this time in history right now gives us a whole new way to come into relationship with that. Where we're not just pulled around by our preferences, our likes and our dislikes and our reactions to the way we want things to be. This is not easy. It's not easy for us. Because the human heart really feels, it really senses in and feels the impact when we become sensitive, when we become connected, when we become more present, and we are in relationship to life as it's unfolding, we are impacted by that. And we, we can have many emotional responses so the question, in a way, is then how does this human heart meet this immensity? You know, all the, the joys and all the sorrows without being overwhelmed by it. And that's what we are so frightened by. I think that's why we kind of sometimes hold life at bay or, you know, kind of like, Nope, you know, I just need, need, need to hold it all back for a little while, you know, because it can feel like a rushing river, like too much, and we can feel overwhelmed by it all. How does a human heart meet this immensity without being overwhelmed? I want to tell you um, a little story of um, some reflection that I did around this equanimity and it was some years ago, you know, about 10 years ago or something. I was uh, spending a lot of time in England at that time. And um, uh, I had the opportunity to do a, a five-day vision quest. And um, it was on the moor in England, uh, in, the, in uh, the Southwest in Devon And it was guided by a um, person who knows how to uh, uh, do vision quests with people. So I decided to jump in. And for those of you who um, maybe don't know just exactly what a vision quest is, basically go out on your own. Um, This was for five days. And there's no food. You don't take any food and you don't take any water. And you don't really even take um, anything to sleep on. Um, you don't take much of anything at all. <laughs> you just kind of go out into this, you know, you find, you find a place, uh, you, you go out and you find your spot and that's where you are for this period of time of this quest. It's called a vision quest, you know, it's from the um, native people and you go out and, and let go of everything and then see what kind of visions arise. It's set up in a way that there's a way you can check in each day with a buddy just to make sure you're okay and everything's okay so there's a way to mark that and uh and if there is some problem you can always go back to base camp and that's where they 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 look after you so it's very well held it's very very, very beautifully held well i was um uh, <laughs> it was hard <laughs> um it was, it was, there was some rain, it was cold, it, uh, I was wet, I got sick, I um, was miserable, generally miserable. <laughs> and um, I I did have my practice at that time, so mostly all I did was sit and walk and sit and walk. That's all I, I mean, what else can you do? <laughs> so I just did sitting and walking and sitting and walking, and I was so miserable, I just felt so uncomfortable and I was in so, I just, it was so awful for me that um, I I, I realized that somehow I thought that I shouldn't be feeling so miserable. Like something, again, something's wrong with me that I'm feeling so miserable. Somehow my practice should have been strong enough that I somehow should have been able to transcend the misery you know, transcend this this discomfort and just feel, you know, this, like, state of grace, you know, in the middle of these, you know, my body just, like, hurting so much from starvation and, you know, no water and, you know, and I had slugs in my hair at night, you know, from the, the wet, you know, the kind of being near a tree and, like, you know, pulling, the, you know. So somehow, <laughs> somehow I thought, Mm, I should just be in a state of grace, right? <laughs> so then what happened for me was that this question came up, up around equanimity. You know, what would it mean to be equanimous in this situation? I really wanted to understand what equanimity was. You know, was, am I, you know, is what, was equanimity... Uh, a, a state of mind that just kind of erases all the conditions. So I'm in a transcendent state. I enter a kind of voidness, and nothingness, where I'm in a protective field where I don't feel anything at all. <laughs> Is that equanimity? You know? It's like I really, really wanted to understand and deeply feel um, if I would get to a place where I would no longer feel the discomfort Or somehow I would feel good, (laughs) you know, I'd feel good in this situation. So I walked, I just did my walking meditation, I just walked back and forth and back and forth with this question, what would it mean to be equanimous in this situation? And in a way, that became my vision quest. Because I had the vision, I had the understanding, it dawned on me, that what equanimity meant was acceptance of the way things are. It means I come into a deep allowing of the way things are. Yes, I set it up. You know, I didn't have to do this. But I did set it up. And there I was on the third day of this vision quest, you know, very sick and miserable. And I realized that I was fighting against it. Somehow I shouldn't be feeling this way. It should be different. Somehow something... And it was like, no, what happens if I just drop in and open to the way things are? And I really... That's when everything started to open up. You know, not that I didn't still feel my body feeling sick and, and wet and didn't like the slugs in my hair and, you know, it's like, you know, wanting it, wanting, wanting, wondering whether this was the best thing for me to be doing, really wanting to be smart and wise about it. But I saw that through the acceptance and through the allowing of the conditions, that's what would allow me to know how to continue, well, the compass I was talking about the other day, the, the which, is it okay to keep going or should I pull back? Is it, am I gonna really hurt myself or make myself sick? And so that was the way that I started to get in touch with my deeper wisdom and my deeper listening, it was through the acceptance not fighting, not struggling, not getting into the aversive states, not thinking that I I should be different or something's wrong with me, dropping in. And then I contacted my inner truth, my inner knowing. And it didn't make the situation more pleasant, but one whole layer of my struggle dropped away. And the insight, the insight arose that what's needed is acceptance. And it was my choice. It wasn't like somebody put me in this situation. I chose it. And I was able to deeply feel what it meant to accept, to really accept the way things are, my mind, my body, the situation. And I could see that the, that the suffering arose from the, uh, Uh, attachment to some kind of expected outcome, you know. And when my mind was free of that attachment, then there was the release, and I could drop into what I call the ground of equanimity. I mean, what happened was, um, um, that was the third night, and then the fourth afternoon, uh, we were supposed to go in on the fifth morning, but the fourth afternoon I hit my limit. I, I couldn't do any more. I couldn't, I couldn't be out there any longer. And, and I went in to base camp on the fourth afternoon. And they were so, so happy to see me, you know, that I was taking good care of myself. And they put me in a tent and they put blankets around me and they gave me miso soup. And I'll always remember that miso soup because <laughs> it tasted like nirvana, it was pure bliss. Just that bowl of warm biso soup. And I laid in the tent and I was I was in bliss. I was in absolute bliss because I had taken really, really good care of myself and I could appreciate the comfort <laughs> and the protection and the food and the liquids. Like, There's such deep gratitude and appreciation that it just brought up this incredible uh, uh, bliss and joy. So it was very, very powerful for me to really look deeply into this question of like, what makes this experience so hard? You know, that's, that's, that's been a question in my practice for a very long time. What makes this experience seem so hard? And I still ask myself this question when I'm feeling like something's hard or something's difficult. I, I, I inquire into it, it's like, what is it? What is it? Where's the, where's the hook here? That somehow I'm not a- able to tolerate this situation. And usually what I can feel now is it's just really unpleasant. Yeah, it's just really unpleasant and it's, no, I don't like to feel that. You know, it's just like, I don't like it. You know, and then I can feel my grasping or, you know, my my wish that this was different and then, you know, oh, I don't want this to be happening. But I see it for what it is. It's just really unpleasant. And therefore, I'm able to open my heart more to the conditions that arise, the conditions that show up on my plate, uninvited, unexpected, and see how I'm able to come into a wise and compassionate relationship with what's here. And certainly there are things that arise that make us feel very vulnerable and even sometimes raw. You can imagine, I mean, I often imagine what people are going through up north incredible vulnerability, incredible rawness, even almost feeling exposed like we have no skin, you know, that kind of, kind of raw. And we don't know whether we can bear it. This human experience is, is tough. N- no one said that it wasn't birth, aging, sickness and death, loss, separation from what we love, not being able to get what we want the general misery, you know, of this conditioned life. And yes, we can, as we start to become more, uh, have more capacity to be present with our experience, then we have more capacity to be able to feel into the reality of what's here and know that it will change. We know that it will change but can we come into a deeper connection with ourselves in presence so that perhaps we can touch into this firm ground of equanimity that will give us a place to stand so we're not blown away and knocked over by these conditions of the, of the world. Ajahn Samedo, one of the, our elders in this uh, tradition, A monastic says, life is like standing under a rushing waterfall. You know, it's an interesting image, you know, with that pounding, kind of rushing water. Yeah, it's not necessarily pleasant. (laughs) Life is like standing under a rushing waterfall. And sometimes for me, it feels like sitting in the middle of a blazing fire, you know, just sometimes maybe some of you have had that experience where you just feel like, ah, everything just feels like it's burning up, you know. But yet can we sit in that, can we sit in the middle of that without losing our balance? And this radical acceptance of the way things are. No matter how much I might wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. This is one of the equanimity phrases that we practice with. Things are as they are. I don't know if conditions need to change for us to feel deep peace. This is the radical invitation of the Buddha's teachings? Do conditions need to change for us to experience deep peace? Or can we feel and know and sense the deep peace that is right, that is possible right in the middle of these conditions, no matter what they are? Birth, aging, sickness, and death. Can we sit right in the middle of that and know the deep peace of the Buddha? We call it Buddha mind or Buddha nature. Because this is our nature. This is who we are. It is the substance or the core of who we are, if we want to use those words. And it is unconditioned. Unconditioned means it is untouched by any of these worldly changing conditions our deepest nature, which we call Buddha nature, unconditioned. So as we start to sit more deeply in the conditions of our life and we start to feel and sense the firm ground of equanimity, we might start to be open to and recognize some of the blessings that actually come forth Right in the middle of the suffering, right in the middle of the pain, and I know we've all had this kind of experience where something can seem so terrible, and yet on the other side, something is offered to us that we couldn't even have imagined that it was possible. Rumi, the great poet Rumi, he puts it this he has this lovely little poem, he says. I saw grief drinking a cup of sorrow and called out, it tastes sweet, does it not? And grief answered, you caught me. You've ruined my business. How can I sell sorrow when you know it's a blessing? How can I sell sorrow when you know it's a blessing? You caught me. (laughs) so lovely you caught me or david white wonderful wonderful poet probably all familiar with he says heartbreak you know there's this wonderful reflection these days on the heartbreak that we're all experiencing now you know in the conditions of this world if we have our eyes and our heart open to the way things are it's heartbreak it breaks the heart and, and David White says, Heartbreak is something we hope we can avoid, something to guard against, uh, a, a chasm uh, to be carefully looked for and then walk around. But heartbreak may be the very essence of being human, of being on the journey from here to there, and of coming to care deeply for what we find along the way. Mm-hmm. Heartbreak may be the very essence of being human on being on this journey from here to there. And then coming to care deeply for what we find along the way. It's a very different kind of relationship, right? To start to open and receive the blessings of what's being offered, even in the midst of the, of the fire, of the flood. And it's something that can almost sound cruel on one level, depending on how we're listening to it. It's like, oh, but don't, don't, you, don't you see the suffering? I mean, how can you see there's blessings, you know? But we have to look deeply, you know, go underneath, it's kind of like go underneath to recognize where the true blessings are in this life. Because if we think they only look one way or they appear one way, we're gonna miss it. We're not gonna see it. And then we're gonna keep grasping after what appears like the blessing. And we'll miss the blessing, or as Thich Han says, the miracle that is always ever-present. So this is radical. We're talking about something radical, a radical acceptance. Equanimity is a radical acceptance. And it says, I accept this because it's happening. Not because it's right. Right? I accept it because it's happening. And when I come into that level of acceptance, then I am in connection with myself on the ground of firm the firm ground of equanimity. I'm not arguing with reality. I don't think it's right and I don't like that it's happening, but I'll accept it because it is happening and because if I don't, I'm just going to be caught in and blown around by the worldly winds of this life. So this is where our practice becomes a lifeline. You know, as, as Cynthia Bourgeau, one of the teachers that I'm working with now, she's a Christian mystic teacher, she says that meditation used to be a luxury, but now it's a necessity. Now it's a necessity. And I can relate to that so fully, because when I started, it was a luxury. And it was for people who were privileged and who kind of found their way onto the path. But now it's a necessity, right? Because how else are we going to find the level of resilience that's needed to meet the challenges that we're faced with now? And because of social media and the uh, uh, networking, we find out things instantly. We've, we have information right at our fingertips. So it's right in our face in a way that it never has been before. How are we going to stay steady? How are you gonna stand in the middle, right? In the middle, mm. find that ground, find that anchor, find that ballast, right. This is what we're doing. We can do it through just looking at our mind for 10 minutes. Just look at your mind, just what we're doing here, And look to see if you're being blown around by what your mind is telling you or what your emotional uh, uh, expression is telling you. Can you find the steadiness behind that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll go on. But there's a way we can just step back a little bit more. Just step back a little bit more Mm -hmm. into that which is knowing, that which is witnessing, that which is present and recognizing what's occurring. a thought is just a thought. A feeling is just a feeling. A sight is just a sight. A sound is just a sound. And it's going to change. And I can witness that change. So I don't get so caught up in holding on to it or resisting it. Let it, let it self-liberate, all right? It'll liberate, it will free itself if I stay steady with what's here. So we start where we are. It's so important to start where we are, not to set this up as some kind of great ideal because we can just sit right here and look at our own reactive mind and that's where we start. We look at the judgments, we look at the reactions, we look at the desires, the preferences, the grasping, you know, uh, how we want things to be other than they are. I mean, it's all right here. We don't have to go very far to look for it, right? We start right where we are. Mm-hmm. And we just see if we can't interrupt that reactive mind, the grasping mind, the one, the ego mind that has its own. Demands and expectations and preferences, and we can see it for what it is and let it arise and let it pass and come back, return, return back, return back, return back, coming into a a quality of presence, mindful presence. Just this moment, just this moment, just this moment. We don't have to worry about what happened in the past moments. We don't have to think too much about what's going to happen in the future moments. Just this moment. If we take care of what's here now, then in the next moment we'll be taking care of what's here now. We keep our practice very simple in that way. So let's just sit together for a moment.